You've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. Technology is a tool with many facets. From its muzzle shoots out a shrink ray, making every subsequent version of something smaller and more frail until it loses all continuity. It offers a sharp edge to slash at the difficulty of everyday pursuits chores, work, recreation, until the day comes when it kills the quality of those things from severe blood loss. It is a string wrapped too tightly, cutting off circulation until we lose all feeling between us and everyone else in the world. Technology is a weapon that we point at ourselves, targeting growth through character-building struggle and the effort we put into interacting with reality. If I could remake The Seven Deadly Sins for the modern age, Somewhere on it would have to be an obsession the majority of us can't forswear, namely, the sin of convenience. A perfect example of convenience behaving like a poison toward the human condition is the seemingly benign, but no less potent proof of concept, evolution of home media and its merging with network television into online streaming content. Movies and shows went from being theater, appointment viewing, and physical media propositions to at-your-fingertips entertainment, consumable as quickly as your internet speed allows. The theater experience has tanked. Broadcast television is a wounded animal, baking in the sun, waiting for someone to put it out of its misery and bury it, and physical media like Blu-ray is being gutted thanks to streamers maintaining an iron grip on content to bolster their subscriber numbers. Is this reality really so terrible? Well, watching a couple movies on Laserdisc for this solo segment, I was convinced that the home viewing experience has indeed been harmed by the current paradigm. Being a child of the 90s, and no, technically being born in 1998 or 99 doesn't mean you qualify for the distinction. I was around during peak Laserdisc popularity, which was never high in the US to begin with. However, I did not own a Laserdisc player and the closest I came to interacting with the format involved a section for them at my local video rental store. Keep this in mind, as I say nice things about it. Perhaps it stems from madness or bad taste, but not nostalgia, except for its connection to a few memories walking around the new releases, looking for that third tape to complete the three-for-two rental deal. I became interested in Laserdisc during that period in every living adult's life when they decided to try new things, the early months of the pandemic. I found a player and discs for cheap, except for the shipping was a whopper because my Pioneer CLD M301 weighs more than a 40-inch flat screen. I sat on my bed and hooked it up to my modern television to test it out, using a Tom Selleck Western to put it through its paces. Was the picture magnificent? Hell no. The resolution is better than VHS, but worse than DVD. How about the remote control and search function? At least on my basic model, being nowhere near the apex, pausing the picture meant it went to a blue screen, and to skip forward or back did not transition the frame smoothly. So I should have been disappointed, right? Chalked it up to buyer's remorse? Instead, I let myself be charmed. A laser disc stores information on both sides of a 12-inch disc, the maximum amount being close to 60 minutes per side. By comparison, a Blu-ray disc is physically smaller, lighter, higher image resolution, better sound, and can hold a lot more content. In nearly every measurable spec, Laserdisc is inferior to Blu-ray, 
like Burger King compared to Wendy's, or pre-Abrams franchises like Star Trek and Star Wars compared to them after he got involved. Any technology that's been superseded gets labeled obsolete, but that doesn't mean it can't still be enjoyable with all of its flaws. There are some things not easily measured in a lab. Sure, streaming on the likes of Netflix and Amazon has better picture, sound, and ease of access in contradistinction to an old physical media format like Laserdisc. But that difference exists across plenty of subjects outside of home entertainment. A horse can't run as fast as a car. But does the lack of a radio and AC stop folks from enjoying a wagon ride? A craftsman can't make furniture as precisely as a host of automated machines, but does that mean there's nothing to like about his work? Like those things, the analog laser disc still has value in today's digital world because of the feeling you can get from it. Movies are so easy to watch. All it takes is a television and internet connection. But with a lot of today's conveniences, being able to get it whenever you want it has taken away from the satisfaction one used to get in decades past. There's no longer a reason to rummage through sale bins at thrift stores and yard sales, looking for titles not available on network TV or the rental store. While it means I can watch some pretty obscure stuff like foreign movies and old black and white, it also means all the fun is gone from gaining access to the content. Sorting through a dusty stack of tapes might land you movie gold. I bet this is the only copy within a hundred miles. Or a fantastic deal on an otherwise expensive purchase. Even before you watched it, already there was a fond memory attached to it. Now with streaming, that's all gone. Sometimes a movie was made better because of the lengths you had to go to procure it. Now you can sign off and on every ten minutes or days later without losing your place in the narrative. If the movie has one bad scene, our compromised modern viewing tolerance will compel us to switch to something else. Not an action to be taken lightly back when you went to four different video stores across the city to track down a copy. Laserdisc has some unique, attractive qualities. First of all, have you ever sat down with a Laserdisc? They're huge. They weigh half a pound and are a bitch to get into the player without touching the sides. But that's part of the process. Look at the cover art that's a fourth the size of a poster. Blu-rays are easier to handle, but the artwork on the front is small and the text on the back is smaller. It feels smushed. Inelegant in presentation. But a laser disc? The artwork is big like a record cover and many times the LD release will use different, better artwork than the initial theatrical marketing. Ever seen the 1981 cover art for the CED video disc edition of From Russia with Love? What a great piece of art. It blows the theatrical poster out of the water. Okay, video disc isn't the same as laser disc, but it's a close cousin. Don't get pedantic on me. It's not like you would have known there was a difference unless I copped to it. And that leads us to the back of the sleeve. Remember how useful the plot description was on the back of VHS? Along with the cover art, it could make or break whether you wanted to rent it or not. I'm not going to pretend that matters now that Wikipedia and IMDb will tell you what a movie is about in one Google search, but Laserdiscs tend to also include whole articles to get you excited. Since it is vinyl record size, there's ample room for text. The backs of some Laserdiscs look like the New York Times and will provide trivia and other behind-the-scenes information. Neat. So after taking them both sides of the sleeve, you take that heavy disc out with the mirror surface with your own reflection looking back saying, Hey pal, you're in for a treat. 
And like I said, placing the disc on the platter takes a moment. I know I'm stretching it by calling it a mini-game, but there's a satisfaction that goes along with setting it in properly. Good feedback, and the player hasn't even been turned on yet. The sound of a laser disc retracting into the machine and the door flipping up is on par with the quaintness of the crackling of a dial-up modem connecting to America Online. No, that's not the sound of a jet turbine. It's the sound of a bygone media protesting its reputation of worthlessness. It's the battle cry of anyone that rejects the soulless convenience pervading present-day life. So once the Laserdisc is actually playing, what's there to like? This is cheating, but I've got my Pioneer Laserdisc player plugged into a 30-inch CRT behemoth. As heavy as a Laserdisc and its player are, an old 90s tube TV weighs significantly more. Laserdisc looks great on a classic display, but I admit that it's tied to the nostalgia of the television itself and not the actual image. But talking about the image, Laserdisc touted a widescreen view compared to the full screen most VHS had back then. On a square screen, it means really widescreen movies are going to have massive black bars on the top and bottom of the overall image surface. Yes, that is a lot of screen real estate inhabited by nothing, but as I was watching Nell, it reminded me of an artsy frame for a photograph. The kind where the frame is supposed to draw as much attention as the artwork itself. It's like looking through a slot in a door, and the added obstruction increases engagement with the image. While I find Laserdisc an appealing journey into the past, I'm not going to claim I dislike Ultra HD and the glory of 4K resolution. I have eyes, so I know it's awesome. There'll be digital surround sound rocks. Yes, I have ears too. I'd never want to watch slash listen to my favorite movies on Laserdisc or VHS. But on the other hand, how many movies really need to be seen with high dynamic range colors? Does a comedy benefit from 4K? If I'm watching a classic like Weekend at Bernie's, do I need to get a Blu-ray or pay for a Prime membership? Sometimes Laserdiscs, that's including shipping, cost very little. And if you get them in a lot, well, that's even less per film. Laserdisc has pros and cons. It's not going to arouse the majority of people's curiosity and probably won't turn on even half the ones that give it a try. I'm not advocating you go out and buy a top-of-the-line player and invest in a library of Laserdiscs. My aim through this rumination on the format is simply to make you think twice about scoffing at the next Laserdisc you see at a Goodwill or maybe displayed on a geeky friend's bookshelf. There are plenty of things modern conveniences make better, but there's also some joy they got left behind in the bargain bin of progress. So I toast the folks that make their own soap, write letters in lieu of emails, and skateboard instead of hopping on a scooter. Process can be a reward unto itself, with the end result a secondary pleasure. Do you agree with our picks? Have a suggestion or scathing critique? Email the show via the screen companion at gmail.com. Tell us if we gave you a good recommendation and let us know who your favorite guests are. Like us and subscribe on YouTube, Podbean, Amazon Music, Spotify, and more. Thank you around the world for listening. 
I drew inspiration for the previous Ode to Laserdiscs by examining my own Laserdisc collection, a modest number of titles which I add maybe a couple new movies a year. It gave me a reason to check out two drama flicks from the 90s, Nell and Philadelphia. 1994's Nell stars Jodie Foster and Liam Neeson. In it, the adult daughter of a hermit is forced to interact with the outside world when the mother dies. Completely alone in a cabin way out in the sticks, Nell is monitored by a couple doctors to determine if the recluse should be remanded to the care and study of a research hospital, or allowed to live independently in isolation as she has her entire life. Having learned speech entirely from her stroke-stricken mother, Nell slurs her words into sounds that take Neeson's Dr. Lovell a while to unpack as heavily accented English. She says since her mother died, she's been alone. She's been afraid. Everyone's frightened everywhere. The sweet Lord soothes our tears. The movie spends most of its runtime showing Nell and Lovell overcoming differences in communication and customs to connect through their shared humanity. Jodie Foster acts the hell out of Nell. Her mannerisms, inflections, and childlike wonder are among the great chameleon performances, such as Peter Weller's Robocop and Tom Hanks's Forrest Gump. She delivers what the story asks of her, being someone extremely delicate, naive, and alien. As memorable as the character is, Nell also comes off as existing solely for drama, without concerns for grounding the narrative, which is too bad considering how great the concept is. A woman who's developed with no societal influences. How would such a person behave? Could she be integrated into the larger whole as an adult? Would it do more harm than good? That's Lovell's position throughout most of the story, that she'd be left alone. What's she really missing if she's never needed modern trappings? Exploring this extremely fish-out-of-water scenario should have been the focus of the narrative, but for a movie called Nell, it spends too much time on the far less interesting Lovell and his budding romance with the other doctor assigned monitor duty. As unfortunate as that is, they didn't have the alternative to rely more on Nell because they made her such a caricature of what an isolated person would be like. Her entire demeanor is too immature, and dare I say retarded, to be believable. So she never had formal schooling or socialization, but she had to take care of herself and her ailing mother. So why does the movie insist on making her the goofiest one in the room like she's suffering from mental illness? The hermit lobby should have been in an uproar when the film came out. I don't have any scientific journals to reference, but I would argue that a person that grew up alone on a desert island would have a mature bearing. They're not going to know what a car is or how light switches work but they are also not going to be drooling over their sleeves like a blissed-out, skinny mama Cass. It does fuel half the story, Lovell uncovering the mystery of Nell's tics, but that was less satisfying than hearing cogent insight from an outsider on what everyone else considers normal. The twist could have been that we're the aliens, but the movie would rather have a bunch of scenes of Nell swimming in a pond while the doctors navel gaze and fall in love. I did like it, though, because of Foster's unique performance and the beautiful North Carolina countryside scenery. It doesn't take full advantage of its premise, but it's enough of a springboard to maintain attention until the end. An intellectual viewer is going to get frustrated by the lack of development in the story, 
While a visceral viewer will be left hungry outside the beautiful vistas in one very short chase sequence. It's emotional viewers that will get the most out of Nell, as it certainly takes its time to let an audience soak in the calm waters alongside the title character and settle into the silences as the cast stare at one another, the trees, the water, and the sky as relaxing, introspective music plays. It's worth a watch. The second movie I saw via Laserdisc was Philadelphia from 1993. This is peak Tom Hanks, so I was feeling good about seeing it for the second time. I think the first time I was 11 or 12. Yeah, I was so mature for my age that a depressing story about AIDS sounded like a worthwhile rental. Give myself a pat on the back. The movie follows Andy Beckett, a gay lawyer who contracts AIDS and takes his law firm to court for firing him because of his illness. Denzel Washington co-stars as the plaintiff's attorney, a personal injury expert who uses Andy's case to deal with his own prejudice against homosexuals. So much of this movie takes place in the courtroom, and those moments are largely the ones that remind a viewer of the overall anti-discrimination message. The filmmakers didn't want to come off as preachy, and I think they succeeded. However, the David versus Goliath struggle between a sick worker and the callous company that axed him is too much of a focal point. Tom Hanks' acting in this won Best Actor at the Academy Awards, but what did he really play? He's definitely an avatar for the gay community, and he portrayed the ravaging effects of AIDS in a haunting manner. But what other sides to his character were there? He's shown to have a large family, and is in a relationship with Antonio Banderas. But who is Andy Beckett? A smart dude who likes opera music. Unfortunately, his arc is very straightforward. He gets AIDS, goes to court, and in the last act, makes peace with his days being numbered. That's why I think Denzel Washington's Joe Miller is the better character and should have gotten him at least a supporting actor nod. Joe has a complete arc, shown as extremely homophobic at the beginning, initially rejecting Andy's plea for representation, to being fully committed to Andy's case by the end. There's even a scene where Joe threatens to kick a guy's ass for making a pass at him in a drugstore. This case, it's tremendously important. And I just wanted to let you know, I think you're doing a fantastic job. Would you like to have a drink with me? I just finished a game and I could use a beer, you know? Uh, no, I can't. I, you know, my wife is... I don't pick up people in drugstores every day. What's the matter with you? I look gay to you? Do I look gay to you? Joe, relax. No, what do you mean relax? You know how to kick your faggoty little ass. Take it as a compliment, jeez. As much as Washington is known for being the bad guy in Training Day, he spends a lot of Philadelphia being a bigot, purposely designed to act as a surrogate for resistant audiences to a gay-themed story. I think the harsh and intolerant moments with Joe are important. If Andy represents gay oppression, then Joe is every person that's slow to welcome different lifestyles. I wouldn't call Joe Miller a gay ally at the end of the movie, but he has a larger capacity for empathy. On the technical side, I want to note the deft use of point-of-view shots in this movie. So often, a character looking directly at the camera is used for comedic effect, but I don't think it inherently breaks the fourth wall. In Philadelphia, director Jonathan Demme employs it like a bear trap to catch a viewer in the middle of the drama. When Andy's getting fired by his firm, both he and his boss look straight down the camera lens for an instant front row seat, heightening the humiliation as they exchange lines. 
Demi also used this trick for good effect in 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. Emotional viewers will appreciate Philadelphia the most, as it offers kindling soaked in sadness, awkwardness, and righteous indignation. Intellectual viewers will also be stimulated by the legal proceedings as Andy's civil case plays out. No literal gay bashing or homoeroticism for visceral viewers. The 90s had Laserdisc and drama cinema going for it. Perhaps my next solo article will be VHS in the 80s and the macho action movies of the time. <laughs>